to stop thinking about exponential growth to change the way that we look at things in business, in commerce and all the rest of it. Stop taking more resources out. Make do with what we have. We've taken so much out of the earth and we've thrown so much away into landfill. Why can't we harvest that? Why can't we mine those and use the things that are in there? Hello and welcome to Saving Planet A. I'm your host, Gizem Eren. In this show, we learn together about sustainability, climate change, a circular economy, and jobs that help save the planet. My guest today is architect Heinz Richardson. A graduate of the Bartlett School of Architecture, University College London, Heinz is an award-winning architect, teacher, mentor, and industry commentator. He is a former director of Jessico and Wiles Architects, an international practice that has won many awards. He has particular expertise in sustainable design, housing, and education projects. He believes passionately in the considered use of the Earth's natural resources to create architecture which is enduring and socially responsible. In 2016, he designed and built his own carbon-neutral home in the Chilterns area, which was long-listed for the Reba House of the Year and has been widely published. Heinz, welcome to Saving Planet A. Thank you, Kizem. It's a pleasure to be part of this. So let's start with our usual first question. Heinz, what does sustainability mean to you? So I think sustainability means simply, really, considering all our actions in terms of the impact on the planet. And it's interesting, you know, currently, if we carry on at the rate that we're doing, we need three planets to sustain our current lifestyles. So the equivalent of three planet resources just just to do what we're doing at the moment. If we live like America and as China is rapidly becoming, we're going to need five. Well, that's just something that we need to do something about. And it's an absolute imperative in all our lives. The building and construction industry, of course, is responsible for a big chunk of the emissions. The UK government has a net zero emissions target in 2050. So how well equipped do you think is the construction uh, industry to achieve those targets? I know 2050 is a target, but I think it's too late. I think we're already in a situation where we're just trying to limit the amount of damage rather than repair it. 2050, whilst a a target, it's far too late. We need to be addressing it absolutely right now. The construction industry, of course, like all industries, I think, is addressing those imperatives. But like all, all industry and all things, it needs some incentives. It needs some help. It needs governments around the world to help. It needs our own government to help. And there's a number of things, really. For instance, if you're renovating your own house or if you're doing anything to an existing building, you're charged VAT at quite a high rate on that. A very simple thing to do would be to cut VAT on any work to existing buildings, which would encourage more people to use what we have. Retro First is a campaign that's running in the construction industry, primarily initiated by professionals who are concerned and impassioned about these things. And Retro First is basically saying, before we do anything, before we develop anything, why don't we look at what we have that's there? 
There's a lot of embodied carbon in our environment, in our buildings, and that embodied carbon has come at a cost. It's come at an environmental cost. So in order to reduce the impact of construction on the environment, one of the things to do is to use that locked up carbon in a more sustainable way, thereby, you know, looking at refurbishing existing buildings first before we knock them down. In fact, that ought to be the default position that everyone takes. And I think the industry needs uh, incentives, but it also needs legislation to make things. It's very slow to react sometimes. And the things that makes our industry react quickly is when legislation changes. People use creative ways of thinking about improving what we do. It's doing well, I would say, but it could do a whole lot better. You talked about finding creative ways. And in an interview, you said before, architects are well-placed to be agents of change. On this note, are sustainability principles and practices a big enough part of the architectural education and continuous professional development? Architectural education is doing a much better job than it has done. And of course, because of the imperatives around climate change, it's becoming central to a lot of courses and is being taught. But I wouldn't say that that was universal. And I wouldn't say it was universal around the world. Certainly in this country, our schools of architecture are doing a pretty good job. I remember back in the early 2000s, I helped a university in Sheffield, Sheffield Hallam University, that actually started an architectural education course centred entirely around sustainability. And that was quite, quite innovative at the time. But I think architectural education has to do more. Ar architectural education generally in this country is undergoing some change. And we're thinking about recasting it. How do you train architects? The traditional way of, of teaching or, or training an architect is to go through various gateways, part one, part two, and part three. And those targets involve all sorts of skills to be taught. But the thought now is that there's perhaps a much better way of teaching it, engaging architectural education with practice and with industry much more, and teaching architects the skills that they need to address the challenges that we have. I think practices Any architectural practice has an obligation to focus on the skills that they need to address the challenges of sustainability in all its forms, really, not just environmental, but social and economic, but also the ethos that they have as business. We're all defined by how we, how we are and how we approach things. And I think the ethos of practices ought to be more focused on how do they make themselves as a business more sustainable, but how do they communicate sustainability through the work they do and how do they address it? Architects need to ask better questions and build on what we know. You know, the places that we have, how can we build on the quality of places that we have? How can we make them better? How can we think about well-being, well-being, again, in all its facets, the impact of our environment on our on our social lives, on our mental health, and on our ability to get around, how inclusive it is. And all of those issues are, are pretty key to, to making a more sustainable place. But of course, the, the biggest issue in some ways is the impact that our environment, as we talked earlier, has on 
our resource depletion and the impact on climate change, carbon emissions. Carbon is key. It's the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Definitely. Let's go back a few years. You grew up in North Yorkshire and later Amersham, where you built your carbon neutral home. Can you tell us a little bit about the environment you grew up in and how did that shape the person you've become? Okay. Well, when I was born in Germany and, and I lived there until I was four years old and at the age of four, I came to England with my mother and we lived on a farm in North Yorkshire. And um, we lived in a farm cottage right in the middle of the farm, next to um, the dairy, next to the stables, and next to, you know, the cow buyer where the cows were milked and kept. Uh, and that was almost cheek by jowl. I mean, it really was a small kind of nucleus of what living on a farm is about. But what was interesting about that, um, because I grew up in, in the country, it kind of introduced me to the importance of our landscape and importance of our, our world because it was there on my doorstep and I you, you know I grew up going into the fields and working and doing all that kind of thing and it made me realize how dependent we are on it the other thing that that's interesting to note is you know times were very much different then we didn't have modern day conveniences and lifestyles. So we're much more dependent upon a, a circular way of living, i.e., you know, not having single use uh, plastics and things like that to deliver stuff in. It was much more um, recyclable and, and reusable. But also um, the climate was quite different. And, and, you know, in my lifetime, I'm, I'm quite old now, but in my lifetime, I've noticed climate change. Because when we lived in Yorkshire, it was very, very cold. The winters were really cold and quite often we would get snowed in. So we would have to um, survive for maybe weeks on end with what we had. There was no central heating. We had a, an agar. So all of those things, I think, fashioned the person that I became because it made me realize that um, human comfort at its basic level is dependent upon shelter and food and breathing clean air. So yeah, it, it had a it had an enormous impact. But it, biggest thing I think is that you know the the importance of our environment and how dependent we are upon the world in which we live. So from a very early age, I guess yeah, that was that was that's how it worked. And the design of your house reflects that, doesn't it? You use what you were given basically in terms of heating cooling the design of my house whilst it's you know described as carbon neutral which is exactly what it is uh, in operation but it actually um uses the environment entirely so the heating from the house comes from a ground source heat pump pump so it's it's from the earth i've designed what's called a, a passive solar house which sounds a bit kind of pompous but but what it means is that i use sunlight in winter i allow sun to come into the house in winter so i get the benefit of heat from the sun but i keep it out in summer the way the house is designed enables that to happen i harvest the rainwater that we use to flush toilets and to water the garden all the rain that falls are on on the plot where the house is, goes back into the earth. So none of it goes into the drainage system. I have 
solar cells that generate electricity. So that reduces any carbon. So there's no carbon burnt or, or created in living in this house. And the other thing that's important is the materials that the house is built of are particular to this area, particular to this part of the Chilterns where Amersham is. So there's a lot of flint, and flint is found naturally in the fields. There's timber, the old agricultural buildings here used timber. And so, you know, those materials place the house in its kind of context. Many years ago at Jessica and Wiles, we, we did a, um, a kind of experimental project just before the turn of the millennium called the House for the Future. It wasn't a fu futuristic house, but it was a project that looked at how we could build our houses for the future that we're facing. And all the principles that we established in that are enshrined in the house that I have here. And the other thing that's very important is the cost of transporting materials around the world and around the country. We had a target on that project of trying to find every single building material that we were going to use on the project within 50 miles of where it was being built. And we largely succeeded. Uh, and, and it became then a house that spoke of where it was. So it, it, it was a, a kind of house that had a vernacular that was informed by its place. It received many awards, but in practice, developers thought it was a bit, um, it wasn't practical. Yes. Well, one, <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. We worked with a contractor and they uh, they built it and they did their best and they were they were pretty good but they were building you know developer houses around the country and the sort of thing that uh, developers think people want to live in such as executive homes you know that are all you could land from space in any part of this country and the housing would look very similar wherever you are but of course you know traditionally housing and and buildings were informed by the available materials of the area in which they found themselves and they also said well we don't think this is very interesting but we don't think our uh, clients our our um, purchasers are, are are going to be interested in this which is really sad because we worked hard we tried to sell it to or sell the idea to to all sorts of people you know i spoke about it a lot and it was very much ahead of its time and probably you know 20 years later, it has become the sort of house or the, the, the things that the house represents and the uh, aims and aspirations of it are now central to what everybody is trying to do. And, you know, we, we did our best, but we were so far ahead of our time that whilst it was a pathfinder in terms of research and development, it never really got the legs that it should have done. And 20 years ago, had, that, had the ability to change what developers were doing You know, we even tried to ask developers if they wanted to give us a little corner of their site that was undevelopable so that we could put some of these houses on them and see whether or not the public did actually want to buy them. Sadly, that never happened, but there have been many exemplars since of, of people trying to do that. Yeah, now probably the, the, there would have been a much wider interest from the developer's side as well. People are becoming more informed Well, absolutely right. And it's, you know, it's become central to what they're trying to do and what developers are trying to do and anybody involved in construction. The, the impact of the building, both in construction and in operation on climate change, is 
pretty central to the approach taken on the design and the delivery of all, all of our building. There's still a long, long way to go. There's still a long, long way to go because one of the problems is people think that, wrongly in my view, that we'll do our best for the moment and then do something better down the line. We have to do something better absolutely now. Absolutely now. Yeah. yeah. Just do the right thing. Do the right, right? thing. That's, or if you're going yeah. to do the wrong thing, don't do it. <laughs> that's that's also a good point. Just a note to our listeners, Heinz's home, uh, whilst environmentally sustainable, is also really beautiful. So please Google House 19. I would definitely have loved to live there. So I hope you're enjoying it. I am. It's lovely. It's wonderful. And actually, what's quite interesting is, you know, since I stepped down from Jessica and Wiles, I'm doing all sorts of things. But one of the things I'm enjoying doing the most is um, people approaching me to design homes for them. And I'm doing about eight homes for various people. And I will only do them if they have an interest in sustainability. And they come to me because of that expertise. So I've done another house like this, not very far away, in a, um, a village called Freeth, and I'm doing quite a few around the country, and they're really enjoyable because quite a few of the people that I'm working with are so keen to do the best that they possibly can, and, and using my kind of um, support and knowledge, we're doing some pretty uh, amazing sustainable homes for people rather than, you know, big flashy houses for people. These are these are really quite um quite nice, sustainable and, and sustainable in many ways really, not just in terms of how they are constructed and, and operated, but also what happens to the area around them and, and how are we working with the environment and the landscape around these homes. And um, I'm not an architect, so if this is too ignorant, forgive me, but it's not necessarily much more expensive than a conventional choice, being choosing the sustainable um, choices. No. Is it? it? It's not. I mean, people seem to think it is, and of course it is, but cost, cost uh, you know, cost is an ongoing thing. And then you save further... You, you save probably on energy, et cetera, further down the line. Well, yes. I mean, we are sitting here with our electricity and fuel prices rocketing. And, you know, in, a, in the space of a year, we're paying twice as much as for our energy. And probably what that represents is the true cost of energy. So therefore, the imperative of designing a home that minimizes energy or eliminates it altogether. Passive house design. There's, a, there's a, a design approach called passive house, which tries to eliminate it altogether and, and, and is very successful. Designing homes that may cost a little bit more, but save a, an, an enormous amount down the line. Things aren't going, we're not suddenly going to have cheaper energy. You know, it isn't suddenly going to go down. We have to generate our energy from, you know, non-carbon sources, which we can do. We can do very easily. I don't think the cost of delivering that is going to reduce. So we're faced with these kind of um, hikes in the cost of living and the cost of running our homes. So therefore, looking more holistically at how you design a house so that you can use the natural environment, how you ventilate it, how you heat it, how it, you can use the sun in a clever way to provide warmth for your house. How do you keep it cool in the hot summer months is also a, a big issue. 
we're getting, you know, the temperature increase year on year is alarming. But it also means that in summer months, our homes are going to be warmer. So what people tend to do is they tend to put in mechanical cooling. And of course, mechanical cooling, whilst it, it provides a good environment in your home, comes at a cost, comes at an energy cost. So using the tools that an architect has judiciously in terms of the skills for controlling light, controlling view, allowing sun in, and ventilating homes properly are absolutely central to sustainable design. Heinz, going back to your early years, did you always know you wanted to be an architect? Yeah, I did. It's uh, Interestingly enough, and it's an odd thing, I wanted to be an architect since I was 11. <laughs> wow, okay, so you really did. <laughs> There's a story behind that. I... I I mentioned that I grew up in Yorkshire. Well, I went to a small primary school in Yorkshire, and I had the most wonderful headmistress who was, um, you know, one of uh, life's unsung heroes. And she was, she was great. She, she really valued every child and valued what um, children could be and could become. And one of the things that she noticed about me was that I had a, a huge interest in, in people. Uh, I was quite good at art and, you know, quite logical and, and all of those things. So when, when I left that primary school, she gave me a book as a gift. And the book was called The Observer's Book of Architecture. There's a series of books. I'm not sure whether you can still get them, but back in the day, there were books called The Observer's Books of, and it might be birds, trees, whatever. Anyway, one of them was called The Observer's Book of Architecture. So I took that and I, I read it um, from cover to cover, and it really engaged me in the, in the issue of, of what, what, an, what architecture was, because not, a, not everybody knows what architecture is at that age. You know, it's a, it's a long word and what is an architect and all the rest of it. But I suddenly knew. So I knew that I wanted to be an architect, and I knew that that's what I was passionate about. And so my whole career path, now this, this is maybe a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But my whole career path through school and, and beyond was I wanted to become an architect. I wanted to be an architect. And, you know, I met some fantastic people um, along the way. My art teacher at secondary school, where I went to here in Amersham, was an architect who decided to become an art teacher. And he was the most amazing person. And he taught me an awful lot. And he was one of my role models. And he fueled the passion that I had for, for architecture. Oh, that's a great story. So you met some really influential, important people in your life. That's really lucky. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, because the, the important people, you know, we go through life, don't we, thinking, oh, we're going to meet somebody famous and they're going to be really important. And all, all the people in my life that had an impact were all unsung. They were teachers, tutors. They, there was no star person. They were all just, you know, decent people who, who taught me the value of everything and that value was more important than cost. And and th th these were important lessons that I grew I learned in my formative years, but I, I kind of, I hope, and maybe it did fashion who I am to become somebody who cares about things much more widely, perhaps. And you've had a long career and you're still producing, you're still working, and I'm sure it hasn't always been roses and unicorns. 
Can you tell us about the challenge that you've overcome? A time when things didn't go right and what you learned from that experience? Well, there are many, many things in life that, that sometimes don't go right and there'd be far too many to kind of list out and, and challenges come to us all, I think, in different ways. And my view uh, is that the the sort of person that we are and the values that we hold are what makes us rise to those challenges and succeed. And I think that failure when it happens to us, isn't always a bad thing. We, we tend to regard it as something awful. But failure, it's better to try and fail than never try at all and wish you had. So, you know, as a sort of uh, mantra for life, I think that's really important. One of the, one of the biggest challenges, it's quite interesting, it, it, it's a physical challenge. Well, physical and mental, really. Um, in 2013, I cycled across America with a group of um, fellow professionals organized by a guy called Peter Murray. Yeah, a fantastic guy, but he's also a keen cyclist. And he arranged a cycle across from Portland, Oregon, to Portland Place in London to raise money for charity, but also to look at how sustainable America was in terms of, you know, promoting cycling. So we went to various cities. But we cycled four and a half thousand miles and it took three months. You know, it's a very interesting thing that because when you begin your career and you go through life and you have a job and, and then a family and all the responsibilities that go with that, you very rarely have more than maybe one, two or three weeks off doing what you're doing to do work or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes it's longer for other reasons, but um, generally that's, that's what happens. And we're focused on, our, on, on the world in which we live. Well, cycling across America uh, meant that I spent three months outside every day and, you know, transporting myself through my own physical effort. And of course, that in itself is a huge physical challenge because you're just cycling every day and, and, and the, issue, the physical issues surrounding that. But actually, it's quite an interesting mental challenge because, you know, after a while, the cycling becomes almost second place. You, you're just cycling and, and you go along. You don't even think about it. So what then happens is you, you occupy your mind with things to, you know, to keep you going. And that was quite revelatory because for the longest period of my life, I'd never really had time to stop and think and just spend some time contemplating all sorts of different things. And it was, it was, it was really uh, quite, uh, quite an incredible experience. And the other, uh, the other thing that it taught me, that particular experience, was the importance of people because doing something like that could only have happened with a group of people that were supporting. So it's a bit like being, I suppose, in the Big Brother house for three months. You know, you, you suddenly, you know, when you're cycling, you, you, you have a chat with somebody and within two hours of conversation, you probably know pretty much everything about them. And then you have to start talking about other things. And then the, the tiredness kicks in and the, the, the routine of it. And there, there are then little kind of, you know, inflections and, and issues that arrive and, and how you overcome that collectively as a group taught me the importance of um understanding everybody and everybody has an important voice 
nobody's more important than anybody else. But also, and I think this is this was the most amazing thing for me. I'd never been across a continent that is so huge under my own steam. And America, the middle bit of America, is huge. I mean, it's enormous. So you you suddenly realise what uh, how big our planet is, and you know how we could actually use the world in a much more creative and clever way to sustain ourselves than we do at the moment. Yeah, so it was quite um, it was quite a quite an amazing experience on on many levels. It sounds like a great experience, and it would have made a good documentary, I think. Yeah, if well, we, we, had been we made a little you. film, and people wrote books and things. So yeah, ah, it was so fantastic. Nice. It was a fantastic experience, and you know, I, I would I would urge anybody in life to challenge themselves beyond what they feel comfortable doing, because unless we push ourselves, we never know what our limits might be. And complacency is quite a dangerous place to be. Never take anything for granted. Never take anyone for granted. You know, never judge anyone on the basis of what you see initially, because everybody is rich. Every place that you go to has a history and a story. Uh, and these are the things that uh, are part of the world in which we live. You know, when you live in a city for so long, you know, as I have done, and um, more people are going to be living in 70%, I think, of the world's population by 2050 is going to be living in an, uh, in an urban environment. Now, that's a phenomenal number, but the, the world is huge, you know. I, I often thought that parts of America could be, you know, people who are being displaced from their lands because of environmental um, catastrophes or, or other political issues could form communities because America is just a huge place. What's really, really interesting is that there are so many amazing, interesting people that, you know, doing something like that, you come across and their, their stories and what they're doing are uh, all fascinating and, and really something that you can learn from. Um, and there are, there, there are some, you know, brilliant communities, people that are actually trying to live a, a lifestyle that is more sustainable. But, you know, small pockets of this are not going to save the planet. I mean, it's great that people do it and it's wonderful, but we have a, a collective problem. True. I'm now going to ask my final two questions that I ask at the end of every episode, and you have sort of answered some of them, but feel free to add anything else. So the questions are, what's giving you hope right now? And what is your best tip for saving planet A? Well, what's giving me hope right now is I think I think the thing that gives all generations hope, and that's the next generation. I came into the world and have done what I think I can do to try and, and make it a better place in the very limited way that I can. And I've always tried to do that in many ways. But I think that there are young people now who are so passionate that the future of it all depends entirely on that passion being transformed into an agency for change, into looking at how we can live our lives differently. You know, our generation has, has done a few things. We, we haven't done a, a great job of it. Is it in a better place than when we started? I'm not sure. But I do think there, there is a, a real commitment amongst young people and I've sort of gone around the world and I've talked to people and every young person that I've talked to 
has been so concerned about the future of the planet that I think that harnessing that and for that generation to demand change, not to just accept the status quo, but to demand change is really, uh, is giving me the sort of hope that we need. And your best tip for saving planet A, what would it be? Well, my best tip for saving planet A would be to just stop, to stop thinking about exponential growth, to change the way that we look at things that, you know, in business, in commerce and all the rest of it. Stop taking more resources out. Make do with what we have. We've taken so much out of the earth and we've thrown so much away into landfill. Why can't we harvest that? Why can't we mine those and use the things that are in there? Every time that you make something, think about, uh, don't make it if it comes at an environmental cost. Um, if you do make something that requires um, the extraction of resources, make sure that you put back more so what you've taken out is, is, um, is replenished in other ways that will improve um, the issues surrounding climate change. And make sure that everything that we do, everything you do in life has, a, uh, has an environmental impact, whatever it is, all the choices that you make, from what you eat to what you wear to where you live to where you travel to every single thing has an environmental impact. And make sure that the choices that you make place thinking about climate change and the planet at the forefront of the decision that you end up coming to. Heinz, thank you so much. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much. It was a really enjoyable conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Saving Planet A, I'd really appreciate it if you comment and subscribe so that other people can know that we exist. Thank you again for listening. 